Hi, I'm Jeremy Ullman, and this is Abstract, a podcast where I'll be interviewing graduate students to learn about their research in a way that makes it accessible, bringing into the discussion aspects that are fun but challenging, covering a day in the life, and also just throwing around cool theories and groundbreaking findings that they've come across in their readings. My goal here is to tap into the wealth of information swirling around graduate students' minds, culminating from months to even years of research and reading. We're going to harness that knowledge together, one episode at a time. Hey, we made it to episode 20. This is awesome. Welcome to Abstract. Today, we are having a special guest, and he is someone who just completed his undergraduate degree. He's our first guest to not be officially in a master's degree, but he is currently applying to med school, and as you will soon see, our discussion was just as fascinating as is always with the graduate students. So, before we hop into it, these are just a few things you can expect to hear on today's episode. We discuss fMRI and imaging techniques, the default mode network and what the brain looks like and what it's doing at rest. We also touch on functional connectivity and this notion of the network theory of the brain. So without giving too much away, let's get started. Hooked on neuroscience from an early age, Alexander Bailey is a recent graduate of Concordia University with a Bachelor of Science degree in Honors Psychology in the stream of behavioral neuroscience. He's currently working as a research assistant in the Neural ABC Laboratory under the supervision of Dr. Christopher Steele, where he examines the brain using functional magnetic resonance imaging, or fMRI. Alex is interested in all things brain-related. He also volunteers with McGill University's Brain Reach Elementary Outreach Program, serving Montreal's under-resourced schools as their communications officer, and volunteer teacher, and as a script writer for the new online teaching videos. Alex also volunteers as MedSpecs Concordia's shadowing director, where he organizes the interview process for Concordia students interested in volunteering and shadowing healthcare practitioners in Montreal hospitals. In his free time, Alex is either reading or in constant pursuit of new science books, trying to fix his VPN or some other technical issue, listening to the greatest hits of the 1960s to 1990s, and playing guitar. He's a multi-talented individual, winning this guest spot on account of his exceptional undergraduate research review that he submitted this year. So without further ado, Alex, how's it going? I'm doing well, Jeremy. Thanks for having me on the show. This is great. I, I, I think the listeners should know right away that both Alex and I know each other, but didn't know that we knew each other yesterday until we exchanged photos of ourselves for the purpose of eventually promoting this episode. So we actually do know what's going on here, and we're both very excited to be chatting in this environment. So Alex, you are the first undergraduate or technically recently graduated undergraduate to be on this podcast. Usually we have graduate students who've already commenced their master's or PhD or postdoc research. And so this is an extra special episode and we are going to treat it as such. So in the introduction, you basically mentioned that you're working on fMRI research. So why don't you start us off by telling us what exactly that acronym is and what it means. You've got it, Jeremy. So fMRI or functional magnetic resonance imaging is a method to be able to try to study the brain from what's called 
usually a systems perspective, namely looking at the brain not only as sort of this incredibly complex molecular and biochemical organ that it is that is responsible for how we think, how we feel, our memories, as well as our actions, but trying to understand it in terms of different brain networks which is something that researchers have begun to explore since the 1990s and has recently been taking neuroscience really on its own version of almost a revolutionary trip of being able to try to consider the brain as this very interconnected rather than modular system. More specifically, when, when I'm talking about systems, we're referring to different concepts such as like the default mode network, which is a network that exists and can be noticed when using functional magnetic resonance imaging when the human brain is at rest. So namely, a participant is asked to enter into a particular scanner where the brain is then analyzed. And you can imagine that this process of analysis is really, in a way, it's, it's actually rather special because rather than trying to inject something into the brain or to study the brain's electrical or magnetic activity, we're looking at differences in what's called the blood oxygen level dependent signal, or BOLT, as it's often referred to. We can actually look at differences of levels of oxygen. More specifically, when we're doing this, we're looking at hemoglobin. So that would give us an indication of whether or not areas require greater amounts of oxygen to a particular region, given that hemoglobin attaches itself to the oxygen, or less. So we can determine, for example, oxygenated areas of the brain that are more active in a particular activity or state, as opposed to regions that may require less oxygen because they're not as involved with that particular state, and then presumably that particular brain function. Okay, whoa. Yeah, <laughs> Hold on a, a second. <laughs> Wait a second. Okay, so clearly fMRI is, you know, the evolutionary descendant of many previous kinds of imaging techniques. This doesn't sound like the first time we thought about taking pictures of the brain. We thought, oh, hey, let's, let's do this extremely complicated process. So just to kind of bring things back to what you mentioned early on is when you put people in a brain scanner, in an fMRI machine, you're measuring something called the default mode network, which you said is kind of like what the brain's doing when you're not asking people to do anything in particular. And there's a lot of contention as to what the default mode network actually is, because if you ask somebody not to do anything, surely their mind is going to start to wander and thoughts yeah. presumably have some kind of, some kind of neural basis in our brain that can be measured then. So what's, what's your belief? What's your response to, we don't really know what the default mode network is. Have you had to just make an assumption on what it is and that it even exists? You know, it's funny. At this point, based off of sort of all the different research papers that I've been researching and reading, I genuinely believe that different brain networks exist, including the default mode network. Mm -hmm. What they particularly do, on the other hand, does remain an active area of research. As far as I'm aware, there are actually two main hypotheses as to sort of what the default mode is doing or what the brain is effectively doing when you're basically just completely relaxed. So thinking about absolutely nothing. But as you mentioned, one big problem with that definition of doing absolutely nothing is that oftentimes participants will look at a particular crosshair as their brains are scanned and they will proceed to mind wander. And that can result in some conflicting bits of information and data that then we as researchers try to remove as much as humanly possible. But it's tough. Because even if you ask someone to close their eyes, which removes any visual processing of what may be going on, that still may not stop the mind from wandering. It's right. like telling someone not to think about a pink elephant. 
they will mm. think about said pink elephant. I'm doing it right now. Yeah. Have you have you ever considered? If, I don't even know if this is possible, but fusing fMRI technology with putting people in sensory deprivation tanks, just putting putting their completely naked body into a salt solution such that they float without feeling the temperature of the water because it's the same temperature as their body, and they've got a mask on their face, and they've got earplugs. Is there any way that we can actually try and minimize the amount of noise that you have to sift through? Because, I mean, I, I wouldn't even know where to begin canceling out thought processes apart from just what we're calling this default mode, how do you cut out what you interpret to be just kind of errant thoughts from what we call the default mode? Well, there are two ways. The first method, which is sort of what you're supposing is the more kind of invasive method of literally trying to take a person into a sensory deprivation type of an environment. But even there, the human brain is rather resilient in the fact that even when it thinks that it really shouldn't be doing anything else, it'll do whatever just feels natural to it. Because of that, what's often used as a way to get around that is to ask participants to, indeed, mind wander, and then to try to remove the signal of the mind wandering scan from the signal when we ask them just to be completely Mm. relaxed. It's almost like a way of getting around the issue by not really getting around the issue. You're just kind of, uh, you're you're actually asking the, the issue to make itself more known. Yes. But it also depends on the problem that you're looking at. Because in certain studies, it's okay to have a little bit of mind wandering. And particularly as this is becoming more of an issue and a problem that researchers are taking into consideration, they're coming up with a whole bunch of different ways to try to address it. Whether or not one method at the current moment is sort of far superior to another remains something that's an empirical question, but something really interesting to look into. So we've spent a bit of time talking about the default mode network. Presumably, you want to actually know what kinds of networks, as you said, are active when you ask people to carry out specific tasks. So the reason why we have this de- why we want to find out what this default mode is, is that so we can then actually subtract that default activity from the actual task condition. If one is looking directly at a particular task, that is usually exactly the case. For example, the colleague of mine, whose name is Nathan Boulian, was doing just that mm-hmm. on his honors thesis in, in our new lab of the Neural ABC for architecture, behavior, and connectivity. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, I really was more interested in the resting state brain itself. And the reason why is because it almost seems like a misnomer, particularly in neuroscience and psychology, to think that the brain would ever stop actually functioning when you're doing absolutely nothing. Right, Because there still exists this very kind of like neuro myth that we only use 10% of our brains. And despite the fact that we in neuroscience keep on stating that, no, that is absolutely not the case. Because if we use literally only 10% of our brains, the 90% of our brains that are necessary for everything else would basically just eventually wither away. And that's not how the brain works. I'm glad that you are dispelling this myth right now. Please note... (laughs) that we do use all of our brain. However, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Alex. Please. We are not always using every single neuron in our brain at the exact same time because that would be akin to a seizure. That is absolutely correct. And even if we were to use similar neurons, it's all based on a temporal pattern of when they're used, Mm -hmm. which is where this concept of the brain network sort of comes into play. Between balancing the distance that we have from particular neuron collections or clusters to 
the amount of energy that's required for them to function to try to make sense of all these complex firings and rewirings and unwirings of the brain so that it effectively makes us the very strange but complicated human beings that we are. And you know what else is strange and complicated sometimes? Mathematics. But luckily, I'm a math tutor. So if you need math tutoring services, feel free to contact me, abstractcast at gmail.com. Oh yeah, and another thing. If you're listening right now, and you are an artist, musically or otherwise, I'd be so thrilled to collaborate with you and bring your work to the podcast in some way, shape, or form. Whether that be through the cover for the episode, or to feature your music right now instead of the music that you're hearing. Once again, you can reach out to me at abstractcast at gmail.com. I want to give opportunities to locals and anyone, really, to be able to feature their work on the podcast here. And now, more on the... So, you mentioned two elements of networks. One, the spacing of neurons, and two, the timing of the way that they fire. It makes it kind of sound like an orchestra of sorts, like a symphony of neuronal activity. What is the difference between having neurons that fire together in sync and neurons that fire out of sync? And do we find these kinds of neurons in the same networks? That is, to call a neuron, a, a network of neurons a network, do they all have to fire at once or do they more cascade? So that is an incredibly interesting question. It's actually still currently being researched and is part of what I'm doing at the current moment with my own research as a part of, of my lab. The typical definition of a network involves taking a particular, say, region X of the brain and correlating it, which is just to see if there's an association of its activity to another part of the brain. If those two areas seem to be correlated, so associated with one another during a particular function or task or non-task during a resting state, they're said to be functionally connected. Mm -hmm. So this brings us into the concept of what often referred to as functional connectivity as a result. Even if they may be firing at the exact same time may not necessarily mean that they are functionally connected to one another. Indeed, it seems that the vast majority of research really does see the functioning of different brain networks and of the brain in general as being limited by this concept of time and seeing it more of this great cascade of firing that forms a very specific pattern, much like a symphony orchestra. So it isn't sort of all the different neurons and musicians playing just randomly that counts, but it's how they play, their tempo, if you will. Mm -hmm. And uh, that really, to me, is one of the most beautiful aspects of this whole endeavor, is to consider that there is such this level of complexity, but it's also deeply beautiful in the sense that there is this organized structure that just remains to be uncoded, but is there. So I have to ask then, and you might not know the answer to this. I'll just go ahead and ask the question. Who's the conductor? So the short answer is probably the entire brain in and of itself. <laughs> okay. The long answer is I don't think that we necessarily know that there is one particular area that's like the spark for everything else. What we do know, which is interesting, is that there are certain parts of the brain that work as effectively network hubs. 
So there are some areas that seem to be more connected to different parts of the brain all over and have these rather long dispersed connections, as opposed to other areas that have more shorter connections. And this balance of these hubs and these other areas, which focuses more like little spokes, if you will, or little side cities off of the main city, seems to be able to help the brain to balance itself with creating functional connections. Now, whether to say that one hub in particular is more important than the other remains an open question and probably isn't the case just because of the brain's sheer complexity. There are certain parts of the brain that are definitely more involved in certain tasks than others. So this old thought that we get around from the 1800s of the brain having a very modular performance and, and function such that the motor cortex really is mostly involved with motor action or your prefrontal cortex really is involved with more of your executive function and decision-making process is probably the case and actually does support past research. But on the other hand, they're not alone. So even if you have one hub being activated, there are many others that may be as well. And in a way that kind of makes sense, although it's really bizarre to consider it at first, because that suggests that there really are these networks that connect different regions of the brain together and make them a unified whole. So rather than it being just like a single person's job, if you will, changing person in this particular instance for brain region, to do function X, function X may actually just come about through an organic process of the regular functioning of a particular network, which is collections of neurons and neuronal circuits that somehow come together and wire themselves to be able to then allow us to express these functions in the first place. So <laughs> connection and networks are clearly a big theme here. So we're gonna keep focusing on that. And in that vein, I'd love to know, maybe by name even, what some of the hubs are. And we can drop a couple of names without you know, getting too lost in the vocabulary and the terminology. And I, I'd also be curious to know which brain regions are the most connected, like you're saying these hubs, and which are the least connected, almost like islands of activity, if those exist in the brain. What an interesting question. So, okay, we definitely know that certain areas of the brain are really, really highly functionally connected to one another. Interestingly, and something that some of my colleagues, including Zaki Alasmar, as well as Paul Noel Rousseau are currently examining, the cerebellum seems to be highly connected to different regions of the brain, not only for motor coordination and for the adjustment of different motor behaviors over time, but also for cognition. In addition to that, there are definitely hubs that exist within the prefrontal cortex, the cingulate cortex, as well as the posterior parietal cortex, just on the back of your brain. All of these regions are definitely connected and are definitely involved with probably many different brain networks. But at the same time, I wouldn't say that necessarily one given region is an island in the sense that even if something may be associated with one particular function in many different research papers and many different experiments, may not mean that it's only dedicated to that function. Mm -hmm. And part of that remains this really interesting but bizarre open question that researchers continue to ask themselves and almost scratch their heads because it would seem as though our understanding of the brain 
really does remain this land of the great unknown. I love the way that you speak about the brain. You're clearly in love with the brain in a great way. And, and I hope that the listeners right now can take away this energy and enthusiasm and wonder and curiosity about the brain. Cause that's, that's really what our goal is here. When we, when we're talking to people with a background in psychology and neuroscience, you're somebody who knows a lot about the inner workings of the brain. It's a tool like the other organs of our body that we use unconsciously all day long that regulate many kinds of different functions. So I, I, I'd like to take just a split second here to appreciate and, and thank the brain. So thank you, brain. Now, I asked a question before about who is the, the conductor. I think I said the conductor, yes. From what I know, there is a region in the cerebellum that's called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. The suprachiasmatic nucleus is actually found in the hypothalamus, not in the cerebellum. Apologies for that. So this region is, from what I know, important with circadian rhythm, and it dictates our circadian rhythm, our, our internal clock, if you will. In terms of the temporal nature of the firing of neurons in the brain, is there any relationship between that firing, the symphony and timing of brain activity with our internal body clock, the, the times of day where I feel hungry and or want to fall asleep? You know what? I, I'm going to tell you the most honest scientific answer that I can possibly tell you at the current moment. Please. I don't know. And that actually is a really interesting question to try to look at. I mean, from a theoretical standpoint, it would make quite a lot of sense to be able to try to see whether or not the brain has its own internal rhythm based on a circadian rhythm. But whether or not that might be how the brain functions, I'm just not sure at the current moment. Right. I guess another question is, you know, do we see different patterns of firing in different networks throughout the day? Is there a correlation? Like, like you said, sometimes you look for correlations between brain regions. Do we see correlations between brain regions across time? Are certain brain regions more active in the wee hours of the day versus the late ones? Maybe we don't yet know this. This is something that I'd be curious to know about. You know what? Ask what I. One, one bit of research that is currently ongoing is to consider that the resting brain may actually not be based solely off of a default mode network itself, mm -hmm. but instead many different default mode networks that mm -hmm. may have their very own system and structure and timing. But what they may necessarily do, that's something that we actually do not know at the current moment. And that's why researching into functional connectivity and then changes of this connectivity over time, what's often referred to as functional dynamics, remains such an interesting field, but also so very complex, because this really does sort of like turn our preconceived notions of a lot of the basics of neuroscience in terms of thinking of a singular neuron that fires an action potential and then sends a signal down to its next neuron. Gets a little bit more complicated when you try to look at it from a wider and more macroscopic perspective. Mm -hmm. Even this concept, for example, of being able to look at stuff using fMRI, while incredibly interesting, also has its own limitations as well that must be considered. Particularly, as you're saying, because we're thinking about things in terms of neuronal firing, fMRI as it's used only looks at the blood oxygenation level, which is based off of the brain's metabolism. 
And because it's based off of the brain's metabolism, the way that we're able to currently examine the brain and to scale it is on a matter of minutes. Whereas we know that actual neurons fire on milliseconds. So whereas an EEG and an MEG technique, which have high temporal resolution, could be able to catch these particular firings and firing patterns, all that we're able to see with fMRI is a greater spatial representation of where it's happening in general. But there's a trade-off here. You're, you're, you're implying that maybe with MEG and EEG, we don't have that spatial acuity. Not to the same extent. Although, okay. for, for what, it's, what it's worth and what actually is really brilliant, a lot of the different techniques that have been used now for decades for EEG and MEG are improving with the resolution. And we're able to tell more and more of fine level details as to where particular activity is occurring, as well as when. And yet, what is becoming obvious is that as researchers, and particularly for your listeners interested in this type of research, we require different methods that may require thinking outside the box of it. In that, as many different research and research studies have been suggesting, using a multimodal technique of using different techniques and combining them together may be the best way of trying to get around different complications and different limitations that have been existing in neuroscience and in psychology for a very long time now. I think that's a definitely a great approach and something that will most likely be taken up in more labs over time as maybe you know funding increases in particular areas, right? All, all of this equipment costs money. MRI machines specifically do cost hundreds or thousands of dollars to run a single participant. So today's episode is brought to you in large part by Concordia University's very own Journal of Accessible Psychology, or CJAP. This is an initiative that gives undergraduate students at Concordia the opportunity to publish their work. I think it's an absolutely excellent initiative, and I back it 100%. So feel free to check out the website. It's live now at journalofaccessiblepsych.com. We're entering the last leg of today's episode where we're going to discuss a little bit about multimodal techniques. Let's go. We have these different techniques. We have MEG, which is magnetic encephalography, right? EEG, electroencephalography, which you said have better temporal resolution. That is correct. We have fMRI, which has better spatial resolution. Why would I want to use fMRI or in which scenarios would I want to use fMRI over any other machine? That is, what is it best for? That is a brilliant question. fMRI is really, really useful when we try to really examine the brain as a whole. fMRI ultimately is kind of the almost descendant, if you will, of typical MRI, which is just magnetic resonance imaging. One's able to get a crystal clear, and by that I mean far superior resolution for the overall structure of the brain. The beautiful thing about the functional aspect of it, of using fMRI, is that it gives us this greater perspective of different changes of the brain over time, just in terms of its metabolism. So when trying to look at different areas of the brain from more of this greater structural component, fMRI is your choice and really actually is considered in many cases to be a gold standard for getting really crystal clear information about different changes of the brain over time. At the same time, 
if you want to specifically examine different questions, like say, for example, the particular metabolism of the brain, just to examine the metabolism itself or different neurotransmission, one can use the positron emission tomography or PET scans, which although have been rather sidelined as of recently, are still very useful for certain questions. One really amazing thing though about fMRI compared to PET is that it is non-invasive, just like mm -hmm. its MRI cousin. So as a result of that, and the ability to be able to really also examine like the basal ganglia of the brain. So mm -hmm. not the cerebellum, not the cerebrum and cerebellum itself, but also these sub-cerebrum areas also makes fMRI and MRI in general really interesting and useful tools. At the same time, if one wants to specifically examine the cortex of the brain, so the top shell, then it really does become more of a question of what question you're asking. Mm -hmm. So I'm yeah. glad that you brought up this idea of deeper structures, right? In the brain, subcortex, subcortical structures. That is correct. Just to tie this into the default mode network, which you said you're interested in studying using fMRI. If we have a default mode network or a, a set of networks, right? A collection of default networks, should there be reason to believe that they are intimately related to the deep structures of the brain, which are old structures. So if there is some kind of default brain activity, I would presume that it has evolved kind of under the cortex. We've developed these higher functioning abilities and coordination between networks, but some default should technically have been there all along. What do you think about that? So I have two responses to that. <laughs> <laughs> First one is that even though these structures did develop most likely with a particular process of becoming more complicated over time, I, I wish it was, it was that straightforward to say, absolutely, we know that reptiles have this particular brain and that's what makes a distinction between reptiles and us. <laughs> Instead, mother nature didn't function that way. Reptiles do indeed have their own version of a neocortex much as we have our convoluted, literally, there's different like folds that create the wackiness that is our prefrontal cortex and prefrontal lobe, but it's just different from our own. And to directly answer your question, however, about having connections between a default mode network to these more deeper areas of the brain, in fact, if I'm not mistaken, research has found that there definitely seems to be activity that can be noticed in those particular areas, but trying to understand their connections and trying to understand how it evolved to be able to produce a default mode network or the like in and of itself really does still remain an open question. And there's a part of me that feels kind of frustrated to have to, to say this because I'd love to be able to give a straightforward answer to say, and this is what caused that. But we genuinely don't know. And, and that's fine. Yeah. That's absolutely fine. I never expect any of my guests, anybody on this planet to know everything there is, especially <laughs> when I tend to ask very, very convoluted questions, but almost as convoluted great. as the cortex itself. So nice. <laughs> I just try and push the envelope a little bit. And if we do get to a point where we're at now where you, you can't answer the question, that is a-okay. It has been extremely fun and interesting talking to you and, and just extracting all of the knowledge that you have. And I'd love to continue to do so again in the future, if and when you start a graduate degree. 
to continue the conversation and discuss more about your research in fMRI and or other related fields, that would be excellent. I do have a question for you. Please. Somewhat unrelated, a little more general. And you can approach this from an academic standpoint or from a non-academic standpoint. But if I told you right now that there were a thousand people and you had their undivided attention, what do you tell them? I would tell them first, hello, people. It's very nice to meet you. I would then tell them that I, I suppose the most important thing, which is kind of as scientists and, and that we try to get out to the public and to our listeners, is to never stop questioning. Because as we can tell through our conversations, while there may be areas that become really misnomers or complex or just straight out weird, that only carries the importance of continuing to ask difficult and challenging questions. Because that's the only way that we'll ever be able to gain new knowledge and to be able to challenge our own preconceived notions of the world to try to better understand how this organ system in the context of the brain ultimately is responsible for creating the mind and for making us who we are so that all of our emotions and our thoughts and our feelings and our daily decisions to decide whether or not we should wear, I don't know, pants or chinos, which are types of pants technically, or shorts or whatever, have a rationale behind them. And these little decisions, the, the small things are often those that matter the most, but are ultimately just manifestations of the wackiness and these functional connections of our brains. Thank you for sharing that. I love this idea of always questioning. I try to foster this kind of environment of just immense curiosity. This has been absolutely fascinating as far as discussions go. I love talking about psychology and you've been a great conversational partner. I appreciate that so much. So this has been Alex Bailey, everybody. You can reach Alex Bailey, this, this infinite source of information. If you have any questions about functional connectivity or cognitive neuroscience, please feel free to reach out to him at his email, which he has gracefully given me, alexander.bailey, B-A-I-L-E-Y, at mail concordia.ca. I'll put a link to that in the description of this episode. Alex, is there any, anything else you want to tell the thousand people who you just spoke to? Is there anything else? You know what? Thank you all for having me. I'm honestly honored to be the first undergraduate, well, post-undergraduate, to be on the show. And Jeremy, thank you so much for having me on this podcast. This is an incredible experience. I agree. Thank you so much for being here. It's been a pleasure having you. And like I said, I look forward to seeing you and having on the podcast again in the future. So that's episode 20. Absolutely. Alex, take it easy. Listeners, have a great day, night, weekend, wherever you are in life. Take care. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at abstractcast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. Or if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at abstractcast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly on Sundays and is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts. So feel free to check us out around the internet. Until then, take it easy.